from the Mecca Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter, where we're learning together how to live in the age of Christian fulfillment. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for life and thank you for all that you do. And we just pray your spirit will be with Seth and Wendy and Mary and Mags as they uh, keep things going in the show. Bless our audience, seekers of truth, those who are here in the church studio. We've opened it up. And those who are uh, home watching uh, either on the archives or live. We want to know you, Lord, and we gather together to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, we spread out our seating and we blocked the areas for food and coffee and bagels. And we opened the doors last Sunday, two days ago. And tonight we've done the same. We're back, sort of. So if you're in town and you want to visit us, you're welcome. And, uh, you know, we'll just see how this thing plays out. I've said this before, but it bears repeating. Heart of the matter, this is a show uh, where we create, speak, address, and we point everything to sons and daughters of God. You have to understand that. I, I mention it every now and then just to let our audience know who we are reaching out to. Uh, and you are our audience. We don't take into account denominational demands or creeds. We don't try to please atheists or humanists. Um, we don't try to explain things that can't be explained in the sense of, you know, if it's a mystery, it's a mystery. There's nothing you can do. Um, and we cling to zero religious tradition. We are not afraid to lift up the robe of the uh, priesthood and tell you and describe exactly what's under it. So. Let me affirm, however, that all people are welcome, uh, of course, to tune in. You can't stop that. But we love and respect uh, everyone, every single person. And our heart is not to mock or to alienate. Our heart is not to be rebellious for rebelliousness sake, even though it seems like that sometimes. And also, we don't try to see things differently on purpose. Um, I just do. So it's, I'm not trying to be rebellious or different or come up with something different. I can't see things except the way I see them. And I'll stand before God with that. You know, he might, maybe he'll strike me down and put me out in our outer darkness and say, your thinking was wrong. And I'll just say, I, I couldn't help but think that way. I've put the work in on the word and I've put the work in with the, the seeking and prayer and, and all that. But I can't help but see the things uh, the way we do. But I guarantee you that our heart of hearts is for God. It is for truth. Mistakes included. We're trying but it is for truth. It's for God. It's for Jesus. And, um, and nothing more or less to say the truth. Last night, we presented some comments on the show on Monday night called Spirits in the World. And we're going to get to your comments on that show in a minute. But I want to reiterate something else about the presentation. I want you to know, because that, that presentation, I'm not sure, said it completely. But I believe that there is a spirit in man. It's the spirit of the world, the spirit of the age. All human beings have access to it. And we might call it the zeitgeist, the weltgeist to the spirit of man. There are plenty of scriptures to support that stance. Plenty. Uh, I also believe that the Holy Spirit, God's spirit, is calling all people all the time to receive his son by faith. And I believe that Holy Spirit is... Um, 
uh, moving people, all people, to do good. Uh, I, I think the Holy Spirit has always been present among human beings, and it's what draws people to religious things like the golden rule. It's what draws all people the goodness of God to forgive and to love and to seek God, no matter what their affiliation is. It's the Holy Spirit. Of course, you can move closer and closer and deeper with the Holy Spirit, and you can come more and more uh, closer to truth, but that's how I see it. it. The Holy Spirit works on people. It did in the Old Testament. It worked on the earth. It worked on people, and it works on people still. It moves them toward God, uh, but it doesn't live in them. That can only come by Christ Jesus. And, and, and so that too is biblically present. And then finally, I believe there is the spirit of Christ, which I talked about. And that too is the Holy Spirit, but it's somehow infused with Christ Jesus. I don't know how. I don't know what to tell you about that. I just know that Jesus said, I can't send you the comforter until I go away. And that the comforter teaches you all things and every, everything else. So I don't know what it means, but... Um, only Christians have this spirit in them, the spirit of Christ. I don't know if they know they're Christian. I just know that it's Christ in them that causes them to love as Christ did, to be selfless as Christ was, and to try to please the Father with his will in humility and gentleness and love. Those who possess it are known by their love. Bottom line. And I know a lot of Christians don't like this talk. Oh, come on, you know, just because, no, I'm talking, you cannot love with Christ's agape love unless Christ's in you. You can't be selfless in this world. You can't be uh, uh, gentle and kind and, and patient and long-suffering and bearing all the fruit of the Spirit without Christ in you. And so I, I thought that that summary was important to uh, last week's show. And then on last, uh, last night's show, last week's live show, I explain where I have come home to roost relative to the makeup of God. This one disturbs some people. Um, I called it the dialectical view of God or the phano view of God, which means God expresses himself in certain ways based on the age and his purposes. That's how he expresses himself. And because I see God this way, let me make this clear, doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it perfect either. And, and so I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that's how I see God. Uh, I'm just telling you, and if you see him that way, that's fine. That's between you and God. But don't, I'm just saying that's how I see him. Also, I, I don't refuse or reject those people who see God differently. You might see God as a, as a total monotheist or a total Trinitarian. And that leads me to the final point. I will not break a, a fellowship with someone who sees God differently. That includes, as heinous as some people think, uh, people who see God as, as uh, a mist or people who see God as once a man. I will not break fellowship with an LDS person who is uh, loving and walks by faith. I will attack their institution always. But the person, if they claim Christ, if they love, if they walk by faith, if their makeup view of God is different than mine, I will never break with them. They have that right. Just like you have the right to be a Trinitarian and I should have the right to be a Fano, whatever I'm called, right? So um, I also want to say here, I've been hard on Trinitarians over the past and I even called Trinitari the Trinity trash. I said that phrase. 
Um, I'm sorry for saying that. Uh, the meaning of my comment was something that's made up by men to describe God as trash to me. Um, so, you know, and I did a little of that the other night. I, I'm a man and I made something up the way I see God. So, you know, in that sense, the man infused part of it, it's trash. But I don't mean to say your beliefs and and understanding of God as a trinity is trash. And I'm sorry. I apologize for that. It takes me a while. I, I say what I think and believe. And then it, I don't let people dissuade me. I don't let your emails calling me a, a, a heretic and a bad person dissuade me ever. You guys, whatever. But when I say something and if it sticks in my craw and over time I realize, you know, that was a little bit off. No, that was not right. You were wrong. You should repent. You should change. You should apologize. I'm going to do it because that's what God wants us to do. So I apologize for calling the Trinity trash in the sense that it has insulted you. I don't mean it to be insulting. And I do mean that man-made stuff is trash, but not that your view of God is trash. And so please forgive me and uh, understand that God is always working with me and making corrections. Paul says something interesting in Colossians chapter two. He says, and you being dead in your sins and uncircumcised in your flesh, he is quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. It's an interesting passage. Paul is speaking to Gentiles there at Coloss. And he said, you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh. You were a reprobate, but God has quickened you together. He's made you alive together, having forgiven you your trespasses, right? Now, that, that passage leads us into something that he's going to say in a second. But what it means is, and really quickly, Christianity is we have our identity in believing on Christ who died, we're buried with him, and who rose to new life. We have new life in his resurrection. We have our death and we have our life in his death and in his life. That's how that works. Christ vicariously did it. And we here on earth as humans walking around in flesh, we participate in that daily death and we participate in that resurrection daily when we follow Christ and seek to walk by the Spirit. So then Paul adds, blotting out, verse 14, the handwriting of ordinances which were against us, which were contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it, the handwriting of ordinances, to his cross. Now that is a powerful passage, folks. Um, The word handwriting obviously means uh, something that was written by hand, and most people believe Paul is talking about the law of Moses here. That he's saying that, that Christ blotted out the handwriting of the law, the ordinances of the law, which stood against us and contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. This could have reference to the law of Moses. But what makes it difficult for me is that Paul, while he first went to Jews in an area, and then he would leave them and go to the Gentiles, he was in Coloss. This is a letter to the believers at Coloss, which was in Asia Minor, which was filled with Greeks and, and Gentile believers who never had the law. So why, when Paul says blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us and contrary to us, You have to wonder, what does he, is he referring to the law of Moses here to a bunch of Gentiles who never had it? Or is he just talking about perhaps the law of Moses and 
any ordinances, anything that's written by religion or, or paganism that is foisted upon people, which is contrary to people, Jesus took it all out of the way, nailing all of the rules, ordinances, the laws from wherever section of the world they come from to his cross. So I suggest that why Paul may be referencing the law of Moses generally, I think he's talking about any religious group that takes written rules and puts it on their people as ordinances. Not only the Jews. When I was about 10 years old, my buddies in the neighborhood, we all got together. We built a secret clubhouse. I think boys, when they turn around 10, love to do this, but I was totally into it. And we got a bunch of plywood that our dads had, and we went on the side yard. That was the age when you had side yards. Maybe people still do. And we built this plywood fort. Piece here, piece here, piece here, and the door, right? And uh, the first thing we did as 10-year-old boys is we got a marker and we wrote the rules of the clubhouse on the plywood. We wrote those rules. And I don't remember how many there were. And I even think there was something about girls in those rules. And I'm not, I can't remember what it was. It was something about girls, maybe not allowed. And uh, so uh, little did we realize when you take a marker or a pen and you write a rule, you are working against your own happiness, freedom, and love. You don't realize it. You think what you're doing is promoting your own happiness, freedom, and love. But in reality, the writing that people do for organizations winds up killing them in the end. And that's why Paul says here that Jesus blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that were against us, contrary to us, nailing them to his cross. And so what the writing of ordinances accomplishes, they work against us. They work sometimes against our happiness, sometimes for it. Often they work toward our comfort. And always they work against our peace and our peace of mind. Interestingly, they always work, listen, Handwritten things always work against the good news. Keep that in mind. Keep that statement in mind. Handwritten rules always work against the good news. I'm going to come back to that in a second. So in the meantime, and back to our little uh, club that we made, Jeff Gallopo, he brought his cousin in. And that worked completely against the first rule, which said, Members only. And Jeff Gallopo ruined our peace because we presented the law and he ruined our unity. And we all turned against Jeff Gallopo for about a day or two because he broke the members only rule. After stating that believers are quickened to life in Christ, Paul again wrote that he Christ blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which is contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Now, I want you to think about this. If or since we are raised to new life 
by the resurrection of Christ, the power of his resurrection, that's biblical. What written rule could ever be assigned to a resurrected being here on earth? What are you going to tell somebody who lives in the power of the resurrected Christ they can or cannot do? If you think about it, that's what we're supposed to do. Die with him in our flesh, rise with him in our spirit. And then you're going to assign rules to a person walking in the resurrected spirit and power of Christ. I mean, what does the rule you cannot drink alcohol mean to a resurrected being? Remember, a resurrected being has overcome sin, death, and the grave. And then you tell that resurrected being, you cannot drink alcohol. What's the purpose of this? What does the meaning have for people who have died, been buried with Christ, and rise to new life through his resurrection? The rules don't have any meaning. What does the religious rule, you must obey a Sabbath day, to a being that has been resurrected? Would you say to Jesus if you saw him in his resurrected body, Jesus, you're going to be at the Sabbath day? What does the Sabbath day have to do with someone who's resurrected? Nothing. Pay your 10%. What does it mean to someone who's overcome sin, death, the grave? You get it? So it's like giving somebody an instruction manual for changing the oil on a completely invisible spiritual Ferrari. You don't have oil in a completely spiritual Ferrari. So an instruction manual to change the oil is superfluous. It's stupid. All right. So Christ took care of all the rules of every religion, not just Judaism. Everything written, blotted out the handwriting, nailed to the cross. We can also think of these various rules, especially those of Judaism. Stay with me. Listen as forever getting in the way of the good news. Stay with me. This is, this is important. Jesus came. He did everything for the world, reconciling the entire world to the Father by and through his shed blood on the cross. This was a victory. This was the finished work by the author and finisher of our faith. And this is the good news. Okay? That's the good news. He came, he lived, he died, he rose from the grave. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. There's your good news, right? Okay. And just as we read, part of what he did on that cross was he nailed the ordinances written with hands to it, meaning they're done for. Let's take it from the business world, and it's sort of like you've paid your debt, you've paid your debt, you've paid your debt. We stamp it, nail it, done. There's nothing left. He nailed all the rules, written rules, to the cross. So, a written message of Judaism, you can't eat, you can't drink, you must wear, you have to obey, you can't do this, you have to avoid that, all amounted to a hindrance to the good news. When you have the good news of completion done by Christ... And then it's confronted with, you can't do this, you must do that, you have to do this. Then we see the reason why those ordinances were nailed to his cross. Because the rules are a hindrance to the good news. Jesus came and did it all for the world, believe on him. The laws written in stone had to go before the good news could prosper and spread among all people on the earth. Okay? 
Here's why. If you take the good news and you combine it with the law, it ceases to be the good news. It becomes the law. So you go to an island of aboriginals and you take the good news and you say to them, hey, Jesus came and he died for you. But but guess what? That means you have to eat this and not eat that and dress this way and not dress that. The good news ceases to be the good news to those tribal people. But if you come to them with just the good news and say, Jesus came to earth, he lived, he died, and he resurrected for you, and he saved you from your sin, period, done, no rules, the people on the island can rejoice, and they can wear their grass skirts, and they can eat poi, and they can dance topless, and they can do what they do, because the good news has come into their life, you see? But when men come in, they add the rules to it. And it's a hindrance to the good news moving forth into the world. That's why God does not have the good news associated with laws and rituals and rites of religion. It's not the same. In fact, those rites and rituals and laws of religion destroy the efficacy of the good news when it's taken out to a people in the world. For instance, what good does it do for a religion? Let's call it the XYZ religion. There's a million members. They send missionaries to Germany. And part of the XYZ thing is, we share the good news, you can't drink beer. What happens to the good news when it's shared with the people of Germany who love to drink beer? People don't accept it because it's tied to the rule written with hands, you can't drink beer. And so the good news suffers when it goes to Germany at the hands of the XYZ church because they have commingled the good news with laws written on paper, in stone, or whatever you want. And so the law had to be nailed to the cross so that the good news could be pure and acceptable and receivable to all peoples no matter what form they came in. That's why there's no uh, Jew or Greek or, or bond or free or male or female in Christ Jesus. We're all the same. And culture doesn't matter because there's no rules associated with the good news. The good news is Jesus came, he lived, he died, he overcame the grave, and he resurrected. That's the good news. So, God sent Jesus to do everything, reconciled the world to himself. But the Catholics say, you got to have mass. You got to go confession. That's an addition to the good news. And the Mormons say, well, you got to have your temple rites and your tithes. And the Protestants say, you got to support your pastor and your church and go to all the things that the church does because that's your continuation of what Jesus started and the Pentecostals say you got to speak in tongues and on and on and on and on and all of that stuff all of it amounts to a bunch of stuff that hinders the good news of Jesus Christ to to the world the same is true you guys with political affiliations When Christians say you can't be a good Christian and a Democrat, or you must be a Republican, or you can't be a communist, whatever it is, that's good news plus. And a certain percentage of the world is alienated, and so the good news is hindered 
by embracing a political party and tying it to what Jesus did. Of course, religionists don't see it that way. They want to purify the world through politics and all this other stuff. But bottom line, you guys, it's the good news plus nothing, nothing at all. When a church or anyone adds anything to the good news, anything, they have hindered it from going forth freely into people's lives. Having said all this, let me reiterate something. This is not ever going to change in this world. As long as Christians continue to believe and hope for a hell for other people to go to to burn forever in, it's never going to go away. As, uh, that, as long as that hell is there, condemnation is going to be there of other people who think and believe and live differently than you do. And there's going to be pious superiority exuding from one faith-based religion to another. And there's going to be denominational infighting. And there's going to be denominational demands for this kind of baptism or that kind of rite or ritual. And there's going to be attitudes antithetical to agape love. And unless we change, and unless we look at this age of Christianity as an age of fulfillment will forever be stuck in those things. And, and the, the good news loses. And so we have to see the faith as Jesus having the total victory over all things in heaven and earth when he died on the cross, resurrected, ascended, and returned. The total victory done over. God has become all in all. Satan, hell, his demons, death, second death, sin have been overcome defeated, overcome and defeated by Christ Jesus, our Lord and King and Savior. It's not still sinning because if you believe people are sinning, you believe God is angry with them and you believe that God is sending them to hell. But Jesus, remember, has had the victory over sin, death, the grave, hell, Satan. And because of that, God is at peace. And when we embrace that, we will be able to live with other people as Christians who follow Jesus and love Jesus, but in love. And unless we change this, we will forever be stuck in this horrible, tepid bathwater of mediocre, lukewarm, pethy religion. I'm going to stop with that. I'm going to move on. In harmony with all of this, I thought it would be fun to read some famous quotes from people who are really hard on organized Christianity and religion. And I'm just going to include it here, and I'll read them. And I think these guys made the quotes for you to read. Let's start with good old Mark Twain. Oh, that boy, he does not like some stuff religionists do. He says, if Christ were here now, there is one thing he would not be, a Christian. That is pretty damn funny and sad and true. Think about it. I can't help but agree. I mean, all you have to, but we have to ask ourselves, why does Mark Twain think that? What gave him that, that opinion? Certainly it wasn't that the Christians he ran into were loving and kind and patient and, and giving and generous and, and selfless. No, he must be running into another form of Christian. 
And so when he reads what great Jesus said and was about, and he looks at the Christian in his age, he comes up with a quote like that. It makes perfect sense. And I think it speaks to the heart of Christianity and where it's at today, generally speaking, but especially American evangelicalism, that it really does not reflect Jebus. It does not reflect him. It talks about things about him. It can tell its congregates to be a certain way, but it is not what Jesus was. And so I think Mark Twain's uh, uh, statement says I'm alpha. Leo Tolstoy wrote, We have become so accustomed to the religious lie that surrounds us that we do not notice the atrocity, stupidity, and cruelty with, with, with which the teaching of the Christian church is permeated. Uh, he, he couldn't stand uh, Russian orthodoxy. He could not stand all the political nature of it. And yet Tolstoy was a Christian man at heart. The Kingdom of God is Within Us is a great book. I challenge you to read it. And uh, this man loved God in Christ. I don't think we can because we have become so accustomed to the religious lie is what he talks about. I don't think we can disagree with him. I don't think we can. We have, as a people, agreed just blindly with the religious lie. A lie that tells us that our faith is tied to other things like money and buildings and politics and anti this and anti that. <clears throat> Sons and daughters love. Here's a rough, rough quote from a man who was really rough on Christianity, Bertrand Russell. But I want you to listen carefully to the caveats in this quote. He said, you find as you look around the world that every single bit of progress in humane feeling, every improvement in the criminal law, every step toward the diminution of war, every step toward better treatment of the colored races, or every mitigation of slavery, every moral progress that has been in the world has been consistently opposed by, listen, the organized churches of the world. I say deliberately that the Christian religion as organized in its churches has been and still is the primary enemy of moral progress in the world. I think he's right. I really do. I agree with him as ardent of, a, of an atheist as he was. When you look at the organized churches in the world as organized in churches. That's what he repeats. He doesn't say Christian people, individual Christian people. He's talking about the faith of organized Christianity in the world. Think about it. It was religious institutions, not the sons and daughters of God, but the institutions. They burn people at the stake over doctrine. They, they put people to death over doctrine. Do you know how many people died during the Protestant Reformation? It was unbelievable who was put to death. Uh, they have kept women using the Bible errantly, barefoot and pregnant, and in the kitchen. That's what they've done. That's what they've sought for. Um, they have resisted the emancipation of slaves. And I'm going to read a quote about that in a minute. They have preached absolute hate for homosexuals. They've been against that in our day. We've seen that kickback. That's been going on for a long, long time. And in extreme cases, they have tortured, murdered, and wiped out entire people groups who disagreed with them, all in the name of God. 
Another quote, Christians pick on the Mormons and their ban on blacks and their false priesthood. But in the mid 1800s, 80,000 slaves were owned by Presbyterians, 225,000 slaves by Baptists and 250,000 slaves by Methodists. Thank you, Protestantism. And Roman Catholicism isn't off the hook because they have always uh, pr- practiced slavery uh, until maybe 75 years back when it started to become, they started to resist against it. So there's a reason for these things, my friends. When you take a look and you take the Bible and you use it as a way to demand people do things exactly as you interpret it from that book, you have the uh, doctrine that says God is for slavery. God wants women to be this way. God hates fags and all the stuff that you can extract from parts of the Bible instead of looking at the whole picture and what God is trying to explain through the history of man. Uh, that hateful, horrible mindset has long existed and it still does. Um, Mark Twain also said, man is the religious animal. He's the only religious animal. He's the only animal that has the true religion. Several of them. He's the only animal that loves his neighbor as himself and cuts his throat. If his theology isn't straight, he has made a graveyard of the globe in trying to honest best, trying his honest best to smooth his brother's path to happiness and heaven. That guy is so sarcastic. He is really, he is really something. What pains me about that quote is it's sad and it's true. Again, what also pains me is these men have never heard the good news in my estimation. I don't think any of these men have ever heard the logical, consistent, contextual good news as presented by both books of the Bible cohesively and in an instructive manner so they can see the love of God in this world, sending his son to rid us of the heinous things that we do in his name. None of these men have heard it. That pains me. That is so sad. You know, I'm not saying they would believe it if they heard it, but at least they have the, uh, the, uh, opportunity. They've heard the counterfeits. They've heard all the counterfeiting, uh, uh, They've seen the meanness, they've seen the arrogance, they've seen the maniacal demands of institutional religion, and they have said, this God, he, this guy is bad news if this is what he leads his people to do. Uh, and then Blaise Pascal said, men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from religious conviction. And that's the heart of the problem, isn't it? According to the full text of the Bible, our religious convictions should be Jesus Christ has had the victory. We're all good in God's eyes. Now let's help people who want God find him. That's really the essentials. And let's walk in love as a result. You know, but religious uh, convictions, so sad, so unbiblical, so futile, and they are not what the king uh, wants us to do by his spirit. So since, of course, Christ has had the victory over sin, death, hell, Satan, and God is reconciled to the world, allowing and calling all to seek him and have him and leaving the rest of the world to live the lives he's given them. He leaves the rest of the world to live the lives he's given them. Christians should back off from attacking the world and spend their time loving it in his name. 
Christians say, but God is just too. God is just. God is so just, he sent his son to take care of all the uh, stuff that should have been heaped upon us. That's how just he is. And that's done. You know, your job isn't to heap justice upon people in God's name. God did that through his son. Our job is to love. How often do we preach this? Do we have to preach it? Bertrand Russell makes another good observation when he said, when two men of science disagree, they do not invoke the secular arm. They wait for further evidence to decide the issue because as men of science, they know that neither is infallible. But when two theologians differ, since there are no certain criteria to which either can appeal, there is nothing for it but mutual hatred and an open or covert appeal to force. He's right. I mean, I, you can see examples of this in people historically. He is absolutely right. Theologians, when they disagree, it's bad. And then when people who follow them disagree, it's bad too. Finally, can you jump to Robert Ingersoll's quote? Last one before, before we go to the, uh, your emails. Robert Ingersoll said of Protestantism, the Catholics have a Pope, Protestants laugh at them, and yet the Pope is capable of intellectual advancement. In addition to this, the Pope is mortal and the church cannot be afflicted with the same idiot forever. The Protestants have a book for a Pope. The book cannot advance. Year after year and century after century, the book remains as ignorant as ever. Robert Ingersoll is harsh. I've read him and I know, I mean, he's brutal on Christians, but he's right about that. Because, you know, when, when the Protestants write, scream, sola scriptura, sola scriptura, it became a free-for-all on interpretation, you know. And he's saying, at least the Catholics have a pope that'll die and they'll get rid of their idiot every few years. But, you know, you can't get rid of a book. And so it's forever going to perpetuate this. That's why God said he writes his laws on our hearts and minds. We read the book for guidance. We don't read the book to instruct and correct and fight over. That's what these fighters and apologists have done. They said, let's take this book and debate. I'll debate you. Let's love each other, all people, all the time. And we'll stop at that point. Okay, before going to the emails, Charlie called in last week and Charlie uh, was not able to get on. So I'm going to take Charlie's call right now. Charlie, you're on Heart of the Matter. Let me turn this thing down. How you doing, brother? Doing well. How you doing, Charlie? I'm doing okay. Wow, you got me. You just got me fuming here. I just, <laughs> I'm, I can't believe that uh, atheists uh, have uh, have it right, and us Christians screw it up so much. I, I don't get it. I don't either, brother. I want to preach a little bit to your to to out there to those um, that uh, have all their creeds and things that they stand by, and you know, each as far as the the, the Trinity and stuff. I Hope you don't mind. Can I can I carry on here for a few minutes? Preach it, brother. Okay. The other day I was watching a show. It's, uh, it was called Body Cam. It's about the police that wear body cams and cameras on their vests, and they go out and they they police the 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 country. Well, this policeman happened to roll up on this uh, situation, and it was a lone gunman, and the gunman shot him. And he kept his police camera going, his go camera on him, and his mic going the whole time. 
that he would lay in there dying. And all he could say, and the spirit touched me so mad that I wanted to reach through the TV and just yell it as loud as I could that your sins have been forgiven. But all he could say while he was dying, and he did die, is, God, forgive me. I pray to you that I haven't done anything to offend you in my life. Wow. And this, this is 2020, damn it. And if he hasn't heard the good news yet, what the hell are we doing wrong? Amen. Amen. I just don't, I don't get it. We love him, and we put this crap aside, and let us just start teaching that God forgave us for our sins already. I love it, and Charlie. We, that is a powerful message, and I really appreciate it. It gets pretty boring well, hearing one idiot saying this all the time, but a guy like you comes on and shares that. Praise God. Well, man, I just know that he walked into Jesus' arms and said, you've been forgiven, and that's the one blessing that we can close with on that one. Thanks, Charlie. Love it. Thank you so much for taking the time. Love you too. Bye-bye. I've tried to get Charlie on the show. I know Charlie personally, and uh, you would not believe his story, his personal story. And talk about a witness. He's a shy guy, and so he's afraid of coming on because he's shy and he doesn't feel like he can articulate well. But he has a story of a man coming to Jesus like you can't believe, and he has changed his life completely as a result of it. So, Charlie, maybe the Spirit will whisper to you to come on someday and share that with the audience because it's so important. Got a great uh, email here. It's from Fire in the Sky. That title right there tells us he's talking about something up there burning. I am grateful that Harlem Matter has all but dropped into complete irrelevance. Views have driven dwindled to near nothing and I cannot stress enough that this is a positive development and one I hope continues. McCraney is a sad case. He never got over Mormonism, it seems, and because of his own pride has made of himself a Joseph Smith 2.0. Letting that pride take him way out onto the broad road of destruction in his desperation and need to be special instead of a humbled sheep of Christ. When you spend so many years thinking you're going to be a God, that humanist narcissism can be nearly impossible to let go of. Uh, but before I read on, I just want to say something. Um, I don't think I, I'm a Joseph Smith 2.0. Um, I am a sad case. I don't proclaim to have any answers, but answers for myself, which I stick to. And uh, I, the pride that you're speaking of might come through because I speak demonstratively, but I know I am, I am nothing, dude. In fact, I say this and it's not uh, just a thing to say. The best of the best, Jesus, saved the worst of the worst, me. And I remain that same worst of the worst in my flesh. Only good thing in me is Christ Jesus. And I mean that, and that's why I do what I do. You think I want to be special? Uh, if I wanted to be special, I would have ensured that our irrelevance would never have come across this show. 
I would have I would have accepted invitations to go on nationwide TV. I would have sold my soul to the corporate empire of religiosity, and I would have made a lot of money and looked really relevant. But in the life of a Christian, in the model of Christ, we see that when he started in his ministry, he was popular. And then when he started to teach things that were hard, people turned on him till he ended his life in ministry alone. All his apostles abandoned him and he was on the outside city of the gates, hanging on a cross naked and dying. That is the model, not for me alone. It's the model for every Christian who pursues him in spirit and truth, who says, I'm not going to just accept religious traditions because they've been handed to me like it seems you have. And so what happens is, is that you pursue the truth and then you start to hear things and see things and you explain them and the masses leave. That's what happens. And, and you know, the, the irrelevance and dwindling to near nothing is evidence to me that that's the case. So I think your, your assessments are off. He goes on and says, heresy after heresy, blasphemy after blasphemy. He says that the desire for certainty stems from our carnal nature after making fun of Christians believing in the Trinity for a purported deflection to mystery. It is a mystery, brother. It's a mystery. And the fact that you've tried to make it concrete tells me that that you have obfuscated the true and living God and the nature of him. I have just reverted from saying this is a concrete notion that men came up with that's true and said it's not. And that makes me a, a heretic and a blasphemer? Of course it does in the religious mind. He says, a grotesque and convenient shape-shifting of attitude. Listen to those words, shape-shifting. I mean, that's like, that's almost like a word that they would use in the Salem witch trials. You know, he shape-shifted from a wolf into a lamb. You know, what are you? Are you, are you, are you that archaic and fearful that someone who voices other opinions than you uh, has become a shape-shifter? Uh, the mystery of the Trinity is inexhaustible but it's revelation undeniable. Now he's importing Hegel the pantheist. I said on the show I didn't agree with Hegel. So, you know, Hegel had some good ideas. That's another thing about religious people. They take, they take the one thing about somebody that's bad and they throw everything else out about them as if they don't have merit. And that's what you're doing with Hegel. Uh, to assert distinguishing unbiblical flux of God and progressive dialectic. Wow. Remind anyone of Mormonism's eternal progression? Has nothing to do with eternal progression. Nothing at all. That's unfair. Perhaps most vile of all, Sean now denies the necessity of allegiance to Christ unto salvation. That is not true. That's absolutely categorically false. What you just wrote there. It's by Christ and Christ only, and I say this repeatedly, that your salvation comes. What you're talking about, to be fair, is that I don't believe people need to know his name and claim him here to receive his salvation because he lives in their hearts and they will, those uh, Muslims or whoever else have never really heard of him, will know him when they die. That's not suitable to you? Okay. You don't have to agree with me, but I don't think it's so far afield. And then Sean, if you're reading, please repent of your pride and cease these infernal heresies.
I think that's James White. I really do. Or it's Jeff Durbin. Or it's, um, I don't think it's Matt Slick because he's pretty direct with me. It could be Jason Wallace. It could be one of the, Cal- they're Calvinists, I'm sure. These guys, whoever wrote that, I'll bet 50 bucks right now. If Fire in the Sky comes forward, reveals his identity or her identity, and says they're not a Calvinist, truly not a Calvinist in any way, shape, or form, I'll give them 50 bucks. So there's your chance to come out and be a man or woman and tell us who you are. Really quickly, Design Course said, I watched the board illustration part twice. Well done. Thanks. I tried my best. It has flaws, I know. Jack Dawson says, thanks for your response to my question on tonight's show. I had a feeling that would be how you would view the documentary Jesus Camp. We talked about the horrible uh, uh, documentary that was. I feel the exact same way about it. It made my flesh want to throw up something at the TV. That's a sight. Glad I didn't do that, but I get the point. Thanks again. Stephanie Smith, a great uh, watcher, she says, thank you, Sean, for addressing my questions. I have no prejudices and have a very open mind. You are my brother in Christ. Thank you, my sister, for accepting me as I am. Howard King, also a frequent watcher. Sean, you are definitely OCD. Can't stand loose ends. I can't. When it comes to theology, I, I churn and churn and churn over loose ends unless I realize they cannot be understood. God is one of those. Cannot be. So I have settled on a view of him. Uh, Gene Robbins says, I think uh, I'm one who writes too much, so I'll make sure I'll keep this short. When some theologians are confronted with the question of where is the Trinity mentioned in the Old Testament, they explain it away by saying it was revealed between the Old Testament and New Testament in the incarnation of Jesus and the outpouring of the Spirit. Do you think that this is a viable defense or is it a poor cop-out? I think it's a defense and I think it works in part for some of the description of God, but I don't think it's complete. We, uh, we have Brandon in Mississippi calling in. Uh, I have a few more uh, uh, emails, but Brandon, go ahead, brother. Hey, man. How you doing? I'm good. I, I called to say that I love you. I've watched your show for a very, very long time, and um, though I don't think I'm talking to the same Sean that I would have been talking to a few years ago, that's okay, because I love this one, too. You're not talking to the same one, brother. You're right. But I like this one. This is a better Sean. I like it. Oh, good. Thank you. So, um, to put it in perspective, I've always believed in the Trinity. I still do. I pretty much disagree with every word you say about doctrine and stuff like that. Yeah. But I think that, you know, in whatever you want to call it, Protestant heaven, where you only get there if you're saved, you know? Yeah. I still think you'd be there. I think I would share heaven with you. And the work that you've done for God is undeniable. Those people who say that you're sad and you're done and God hadn't used you, they're, they're lying, man. You've probably busted the kingdom wide open and you'll see it that just the words you've spoke about mormonism there's people here in mississippi that know your name who've come out of that church and they say thank god for sean mccraney well so Brent- these christians who've turned their back on you you're a teammate you're a brother you're still in the fight i can't tell you brandon how much that means to me because for a couple reasons one you're a believer and with a, with a heart that's open enough to allow me my heresies, if that's what they are, 
You have expressed support for me in spite of them. You've stood by what your beliefs are firmly, and yet you still love me. And if you're someone who can do that, man, I know you are a brother. You're a son of God. And we need more people like that in our faith. And so I really thank you so much. Finally, I really appreciate the fact that you're from Mississippi. Because yeah, of all places, you know. Of all places. Well, not that. Yeah. It's just that it tells me that this isn't geographically based opinion. This is someone who really doesn't know me. I've never met you. And you're in another state and you're, and you're sharing your heart with us. So, brother, I really appreciate that support. And I pray God will help me see things rightly and correct me along the way. If I could tell you this quickly, I don't want to waste all your time. Yeah. But uh, there is a ex-Mormon bishop. He's still in the church. Uh, he lost his daughter that I went to school with. She had cancer and died. But before she died, she went to the temple, got a patriarchal blessing that she would graduate high school, go to college, recover from the cancer. She didn't. So this guy who's big in the church, big in the community, he's run for public office and stuff, he sat in my living room the other day and cried because he said, I can't talk to anybody in my church about this. What do I do? I know the guy lied to me. He said he spoke for God, but he lied to me. What do I do? So I tried to minister to him, and I directed him to you. Huh. And he's been watching, and he said, look, I hate this guy, but I love him at the same time. Where'd you find him? And I said, well, I think God knows more about YouTube than I do. <laughs> about five years ago, I found Sean, so... I'd do anything in the world for you, man. You, you've changed people's perspective. You've done God's work, and I, I would stand by you to the end. Thanks, Brandon. God bless you, and thank you so much. Yes, sir. Talk to you later. Yes, sir. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, very quickly, um, Gene Robbins says, I'm, oh, yeah, I already read that. Kevin Bean said, putting theological differences aside, Quoted around the 56-minute mark, I watched many of the original HOTM episodes when you refuted Mormonism. Do you now accept Mormonism as a valid form of Christianity or no? Okay, I'm just going to answer that part. Mormonism, absolutely, categorically, no. Absolutely not. Mormon people, absolutely. As much as I accept a Catholic, a Baptist, a Protestant or any of the rest of us on this earth who are seeking God. Because there are Mormon people who seek him in spirit and truth. They are misled by things, just like there are Protestants that are misled by things. But they seek him in spirit and truth, and they love Jesus. So Mormonism, not Christian. Mormon people, I leave that between God and, and, and them, and I do my best to help them if they're interested. And so I'll answer it that way. Kevin... Bean says, Sean, I'd love to hear your reply. That was it. Uh, then from last night's show, which was about the spirit, uh, fresh off the boat, said, love this. Stephanie Smith said, In interesting, never thought of this before. A.F. Bradley wrote, you're on it. Very close, Sean. It's an evolutive thing, a refinement of spirit, so to speak, that has to do with the spirit of God undergoing what it was like to experience this world as a man born of a woman born under the law whereas Adam was directly created so the comforter is the Holy Spirit as having experienced the humanhood of a man born of a woman 
Jesus was the second Adam. Both were without sin. Jesus could sin just as Adam could. But unlike Adam, Jesus did not sin. So the second Adam and the first Adam were both Adam's humans, but had different origins and lived different lives. One failed, the other succeeded in being obedient. And as heavy as that is, I agree with him. I think in in AF Bradley, if it's a woman, I agree with her. Essentially, what he or she is saying, I see what they're saying, and I agree. Uh, Winged infinity, and we're going to read, well, I can't, I'm going to get to winged infinity next week. It's long, and I'm going to wrap it up with these last two quotes. Uh, An atheist once asked me, this is from Common Sense Christianity, and I'm not sure the best way to respond. Bone cancer in children is not about free will. If God can harden the heart of Pharaoh, he can interfere with free will. So how can we have free will if God can just interfere with it? Did Pharaoh have a choice in whether he accepted God's plan? I just would say relative to the Old Testament and God working with the nation of Israel, that the way he did things then were uh, intrinsic to that day and age, and I'm not sure it's the same now. Uh, I think that God interfering with the free will of man does still happen. It's up to his um, decision, all things considered. I'm not going to question it, but I don't think that he is constantly interfering with the free will or the outcome of human life on this earth. That is why sometimes there are people like Ravi Zacharias, who I guess, according I think to Wendy, he died today. He died of cancer. There were probably hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people praying for his uh, health, and he died. You know, so what God does is a mystery, uh, common sense Christianity, and uh, that's Ethan. And so I don't know how to answer it completely either, uh, and I would just say that. Then Leanne Young said, Sarah said, some people are going to be truly shocked that I disagree with you so strongly on something And I'm willing to express it openly like this, but I really hate that you got rid of that awesome intro song. Now, every time I watch HOTM, my kids think I'm watching something scary. Uh, And I'm sorry, my sister, for the intro song, but we had to do it because our shows are being stopped by YouTube because even intro songs that we have paid for, like that one, are coming back at us as, as being a copyright infringement. And so we had to do it. Uh, love all your comments. I'll get to that other one next week when we open up. In fact, we'll open with it. And uh, love your prayers. Love your hearts. And I also have one about being a Christian and LGBT. And I'll address that uh, next week when we open up too. Uh, keep going. Keep loving. Thank you for loving me as much as I can be hated with the stuff I say and do. And I'll try to do that back in return. And we're going to make Christianity better by taking that on. See you next week here in Heart of the Matter.